At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Well, have you ever been at or had one of those huge, I mean, not just your ordinary like birthday party kind of thing, but like one of those huge, organized, happy, large, functional family gatherings? Uh, maybe it's been, uh, I think the holidays can provide a bit of a template or uh, an opportunity for something like that, or maybe it's been a family reunion where you're together not only with, with your immediate family, but with your extended family, with uncles and aunts and cousins and cousins distantly removed, and, and everybody in the family is there together. Those opportunities are the opportunities, those gatherings and environments are the, the opportunity for one or two things to happen. Either A, it's going to be absolute chaos, it's going to be a complete mess, something funky is going to happen and it's just going to devolve into everybody being mad at everybody else, or B, it's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a great time together, there's going to be uh, just a reunion of love and care and joy together, and it's, it's going to be life-giving. It's going to be beautiful. Now, whether you, whether you get chaos or celebration, to get to the celebration reality of that kind of a gathering, you've got to find it takes work. It's not something that just comes uh, just with no planning, no organization, just organically happens, at least not in my experience. And if you have had an experience like that, please tell me how that works so that we can uh, you know, reproduce that around for everybody else. But, but usually it takes planning, it takes organization, it takes follow through. To see a, a fully functional, happy family gathering of celebration that's large, I mean, everybody's got to know what part they play in the mix of it. They've got to know what they're responsible for and what they're responsible not for. You know, the, the structure of the meal, who sits where, who sets up the tables, who does the cleanup and the dishes, who takes care of the kids, where do the babies take a nap? All of those big questions and a million more have to be answered and planned for. If you've had a positive experience with that, then you know how life-giving it could be, how, how fun it is. But if you've had a negative experience... You know the chaos and the frustration and even the pain that might be there. So what about the church? We're in this series called Church, Why Bother? We've been talking about the dynamic of who we are as a church family, of what that looks like. And I bring this up, I bring up the church because we at Woodside here say and state we have a value. And that value as a church is that we are family. Our design, our desire is that we would live and be a family of celebration, that it would be life-giving, that there would be joy, that there would be harmony and peace, and a place where the light of Christ would flourish and flow from us. We don't want to be a family, a spiritual family of chaos, where there's uh, destruction and division and pain and wounding all over the place. God calls us to be a life-giving, God-glorifying family of celebration and joy and Christ. So the question is, how do we get there? If we're this, this community of people, this larger community of people, how do we be the well-ordered, gospel-centered family that God has made us to be that shines the light of Christ into the world? How do we keep from being a chaotic, self-oriented set of individuals that care little for being a family together 
and that hinders the light of Christ in the world. That question, that dynamic, if you will, of being family is really the burden that Paul cares and carries to Timothy about the church as he writes this letter to him. Paul has told Timothy, I am setting you in Ephesus. I'm leaving you there as I go on my missionary journey so that you'll set things in order, so that you'll, you'll teach and instruct and so that the church will operate well and, and it will be the dynamic family of celebration and glory to God. And so as we've been studying this letter, we come now to chapter 5, and Paul here is instructing Timothy about how he should lead as a pastor and how he should minister to people in the church, particularly to a specific group of people, widows in the church, and what the dynamic of their lives and his life as a leader in the church should look like. Now, we're going to get into some really specific setting here. Paul is telling Timothy about a particular uh, contextual uh, reality in Ephesus, uh, a particular group of people that needed care. But as we look at the specifics here in this chapter, there's also some general practical applications that hit home for us as we exist as a church family. There's some things here that carry up for us to look at today and say, okay, that's what this means for you and I as we live in the church. But we need to see the perspective that the church should relate as a family of God. For us to say we are family means that we need to see one another in a family way, that we need to to carry out and live with one another and for one another in the way of family as God has designed and built us to be. The church must relate as a family and ultimately the family of God. Paul, if you remember, in chapter 3 describes the church as the household of the living God. We're God's family. Because of what Christ Jesus has done for us in his life and death and resurrection, he has brought us and adopted us into his family. God is our father. And as a result of that, that means that there's implications for how we live as family together. So that's a question I want to address this morning. How does God want his family to relate? And through the lens of this very specific situation in the church at Ephesus, we can see some principles for how we live and operate as a family together today. The Holy Spirit wants to illuminate our way and show us this morning, I think, three ways that God wants his family to relate in this chapter. So our aim is to be a life-giving, God-glorifying family of celebration in this world we're going to ask the question, how do, what does it take to get there? How do we live in such a way that we relate to family as, one, we relate as family well with one another? So let me draw out these three things for us this morning from the specific but also for the general life for us today. The first thing that we are to look at and to see as a church family is that we are to treat one another with honor. We are to treat one another with dignity, with honor, with respect. Now, Paul, in verse 1, he speaks specifically to Timothy about how Timothy, as the pastor there in that community, as the pastor there in that church, should relate to men and women, whether younger or older, in, uh, in the church. And, and he has some instructions about how he treats, how Timothy is to lead and to treat these younger men, these older men, these younger women, these older men, uh, older women. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. Tim, uh, Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, let me set up two things. First of all, the who here. The who is the the people in this. He's, He's telling Timothy, here's your perspective that you're to have on everybody in the church. Like, when you look at these four descriptors, men and women, older and younger, you're finding that that encompasses absolutely everybody. 
We don't have Timothy's age, but from wherever he stood, and probably he was a younger uh, 30s, maybe middle age, uh, somewhere in his 30s or 40s man and leader in there. So there's a perspective for him of there's older men in the church and there's younger men. There's older women in the church and there's younger women. Like wherever you're at, there's always that dynamic. And so how are you to relate to them? I want us to do something here for just a moment. I want you to look around the room. Okay, but, but don't just like real quick or don't just look at the, the person you came with this morning, but like really look around, okay? Eyeball these people. They're, yeah, uh-huh, that's awkward. You all need to get to know each other a little bit better. Like look around. Okay, now, now I'm just going to apply the language here that Paul uses to us, okay? As you look around this morning and, and seeing one another eye to eye, you're seeing fathers and mothers, you're seeing brothers and sisters. That's who's here. The family's here. That's a good and beautiful thing. That God has designed the church and has identified His people in the church as spiritual family together. Fathers and mothers. Brothers and sisters. And I know some of you come from painful experiences of family where fathers and mothers or brothers and sisters is not a welcome thing in your life. But I, but I want to encourage you not to let that push you against how God has designed the church. He has designed the church to be fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters for your good, to be a redemptive and restorative place of true family. So if you come here this morning with those wounds about family, I want to I say I'm sorry, but also at the same time, I want to encourage you to see this community as a safe and holy and helpful place for you to experience true God-given fathers and mothers and, and brothers and sisters. So that's the, where he starts with talking about the who. Family. Together. But then notice he talks about how. How do we relate to, to family with one another? Or how should we not relate? So from, from Paul's vantage point to Timothy, he says, Timothy, okay, you're going to have men in the church, older men particularly, that will annoy you. They will frustrate you. I mean, these are the older guys that are stuck in their ways. They know how to do it. They've kind of got that ox mentality. There's, you're as stubborn as the day is long, and they're going to push against you. They're going to challenge you. Timothy, how should you operate with those guys? Don't rebuke them, he says. Now, the word rebuke here is the idea of, of striking at or publicly humiliating. Maybe another way to say it or paraphrase it is like, don't get punchy with these old guys, uh, Timothy. Honor them. He says, in fact, encourage them. Encourage these men as you would a father. So think about your relationship with these guys, Timothy, and think about how, how you would treat your father, how you should treat your father, with respect, with, with honor, with dignity, with gentleness, with care. The word encourage here is actually the same word that Jesus uses to describe or to name the Holy Spirit in the book of John, that when the helper comes, the advocate, the encourager, the paraclete, He's saying that's how you are to be towards older men, to encourage them on, to advocate for them, to counsel them, to encourage them, to spur them on, to help them, to love them. That's how you're to live that way, to, to not rebuke them, to not, uh, to not just shame them, but to build them up. And furthermore, he says, think about the younger men, Timothy, the younger men that are in your ministry and in your church. Treat them like you would brothers, not 
not enemies, not competitors, not adversaries, but, but in the good and the right and the, and the pure way of brothers. Brothers love one another. They lock arms for one another. They will, they will fight with each other, but they will fight for each other until the day is long. And so, Timothy, treat the younger men in your church like brothers. Love them, serve them, bless them, pick on them. You know, all the good things that are there, as you would brothers. What about women in the church? Well, Timothy, as you think about the older women in your church, the, the people, the older women that you minister to, consider them mothers. Love them. Honor them. Care for them. Revere them. Treat them so well. Respect them. And what about the, the younger women in the church? Treat them as sisters in all purity. Timothy is to treat a younger woman like a, like a sister caring for and protecting her and serving her with, with utter and complete holiness and dignity, not to strip away her value or to, to violate her, but to honor her. Again, this is how the church should operate as a family together, as God's household, that we should care for one another, honor one another, love one another as the best and holiest of families how we're to display God's grace in the world. But we're so driven by our culture and by driven by our own mindsets that we today don't often think of the church as family, do we? We think of the church in, in the way that our cultural DNA has built us to think. We think of it in an individual framework. Individualism runs rampant in our culture. It is the way that we see the world. Individualism says that I am who I want to be. I am how I identify to be. And if you speak against my self-given identity, or if you, uh, if you don't like my self-given identity, you're the one who's wrong. And I can plug and play and decide whatever I want, however I want, whatever way should affirm and build me up. And so we come to the church that way. I am the supreme identity of myself and because I am the individual at the highest and greatest value is me, I want the church to meet my needs, to celebrate my preferences, to affirm my actions and my lifestyles and my thing. And we look for the church to be all about us and to uplift our own self-given identities. It's expressive, authentic individualism that just runs in our life. And so when there's conflict that hits, we go, okay. Or when there's something we don't like, we go, you know what? That church doesn't meet the need. I'll find the one that does. That, that spiritual family, as the scripture talks about, they're no good for me anymore. I'm going to find a better place that does affirm and build me up. And we do away with the concept of spiritual family. Maybe the way for me to put it this way is like we can't give up on one another. We can't bail out on one another. We shouldn't. We're the people of God, the family of God, and so we're called to be family together, and when the things get hard, when the, the tough conversations have to come, we work it out. We fight for one another. We labor for growth together. Friends, let me tell you, if you're just plugging and playing with the church, you will not grow significantly in the ways that God wants you to grow through the long obedience that He has for you. You may feel better, but you won't grow deeper. We must respect one another and care for one another as family. I'm reminded of the time when I was in elementary school. 
Well, my mom, uh, I was taking piano lessons at the time, and my mom said to me, uh, I think my lesson was the next day, and I had to practice, and I had it, and my mom said, go, practice the piano, I want you to work on it so that you can go to your lesson tomorrow and actually sound competent, like, you know, uh, you're, you're getting along in proficiency in the piano. So I went back to the piano room, and I dinkled around for a little bit and played for about five minutes or so and felt like I had done the, the task, checked the box, and got up and left the piano room, and my mom calls out and says, Jeremy, she was in the kitchen, Jeremy, practice the piano, I told you you need to do that. I was like, Mom, I did. She's like, no, you didn't, that sounded horrible. Like, you only spent five minutes in there, you gotta work at this, like, I want you to be a good pianist. I'm not, by the way. Um, <laughs> I want you to learn and grow, and, and so I was like, Mom, I, and she's just finally, get back in there, do it. Well, about that time, my mom is, her back is to me, and I'm just like full of anger that she has told me to go and play the piano, so I look at her, and, and my tongue makes its way out of my mouth at her in her direction just to disrespect and to, to degrade her. And about the same time, the Lord sovereignly places my dad walking by me as I'm sticking my tongue out her. And he saw it, and he saw me. He sent me down to his study in the basement. He sat behind his big desk, and I sat in front of him waiting my death sentence. My dad handed me a Bible and he said, hey, I've got some choice passages for you to read. Why don't you flip into the Old Testament there? Read this passage, you know, the passage about rebellious children being stoned to death for the rebellion. A few of those passages. And my dad said, this is what you deserve. I saw it, like I'm caught red-handed or red-tongued, whatever it was. And then my dad reminded me that Jesus had come and taken the punishment in his own death that I deserved for my disrespect and dishonor of my mother, that Jesus was the one who was put to death for me. And that was such good news. But my dad also reminded me that because Jesus had done that, and because I was part of his family, and I was part of the Ripel family, the family value is that we honor one another. Because I was a son, I was obligated to respect and to honor and to treat my mother well. And that my dad told me, I won't, I won't allow you to treat your mother this disrespectfully. Dad didn't throw me out of the family. He didn't disown me. He called me to a greater and higher value, a greater display of virtue. If we think about how we're to live in the light of the good news, that Jesus took our penalty for our dishonor, that we leveled against our Father in heaven, we're called to see a higher regard for each other. Just as Jesus died for you, we must remember he died for the other members of our spiritual family. So you don't, when we look around the room, you don't just see brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers because we're all created in the image of God. You see brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers because we have been redeemed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He shed his blood for our sin and for our rebellion against our heavenly father. So we're unified together. We're to be people of unity. This means we don't quit or give up or look down upon one another when there are tough moments. Jesus died to make us one in him, so we work it out in respect. We love one another. We live the long road of faithful obedience to Jesus together. Honor is the value of family. It's the way we're to live as family together. There's more here for us. Let's go to the second thing. Secondly, as we live in honor towards one another, then we have obligations to how we care for one another, and we are to care for one another with discernment. Now, let me just take verses 3 through 8 here very uh, 
carefully and quickly and help you see what Paul is addressing here. He goes into a specific situation. There are widows in the church family that have needs. And so he says to honor those widows who are truly widows. First of all, the word honor there means uh, to care for them. The word honor has more than just the idea of respect behind it. The word has the, uh, the sense of providing financial assistance. He's like basically saying, care for these widows in a way that you provide financially for them, that they have uh, income and supply to make ends meet, to, to be able to live and to flourish. And that was an appropriate means of showing respect. These widows are to be cared for, even financially, by the church. And he says, honor these widows who are truly widows. Now, what's it? What does it mean when he says those who are truly widows? Well, that's what he talks about in verses 4 through 8. He gives some, some parameters about who a true widow is, who should receive the, the care and the financial support from the church as a widow. Here's, here's what it looks like. Paul says, in this care, these true widows are, first of all, a woman who has no extended family, a widow who has no extended family to care for her. Verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Paul just instructs the family and says, listen, you are obligated to take care of your parents. It fits with the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Honor them, take care of them, bless them. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they are the front line, the first line in providing for the financial assistance and care for their mother. This was important in the Roman culture because women in the Roman culture were, were just property in many ways. And so when a husband died, his estate didn't necessarily go to the wife. It would actually go to one of the children, the sons. And in, within the culture of Rome, the adoption culture of Rome, it could go, that estate could go to someone who's not even a biological child. The father adopted someone in for status or prestige, and the entire estate could go to them, and they had no obligation to care for his widow. So there's these widows in the church who have no family members to care for them. They, they have no help in that way. They have no income of their own. And they're virtually homeless and destitute. Paul says, church, care for them. But if you're a widow and you have children in the home, and, and he's saying to the church, you children who have mothers who have been widowed, it's on you to care for your mom. It's on you to provide for her. You're learning, he says, to show godliness to your own household. Just the way that God the Father has provided for us, you children are to provide for your mothers to show honor and respect in fitting the law and the fifth commandment. You're making a return on your parents. Like Think about it. Your parents, as you were a young infant, they clothed you and fed you and cleaned you and provided shelter and all good things for you. And now as they get into their elder period of life and their later stages, the opportunity and the obligation flips. It's now your turn to care for them to make a return, to love them. And he says, this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is how God has designed the family, biologically and spiritually, to care for those in need, to care for widows. Paul goes even so far as to say in verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Or that is to say, his life matches nothing of the gospel. It doesn't display the generosity and the care and the provision of God the Father. And you're actually, you're actually betraying culture. Like the world looks at its household and they care for it. You don't. That's worse than being an unbeliever. You're outside of what the faith calls us to and the way of life. 
Christ has died for his family, so take care of your family. Even unbelievers do this. So the first qualification to be a true widow is that she has no children, nobody else to care for her. Secondly, the second qualification to be a true widow is in verse 5 and 6, and that is a true widow in the church is one whose life is set on God, not on possessions. Her life is set on God, not on, not on inquiring stuff and wealth. So Paul points this out by way of contrast. He says, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope set on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She is actively dependent on God to provide for her through his people. And she's crying out to God. She's leaning on God. She has set her hope. She's banked her life on God and his provision. In contrast to the woman who is self-indulgent, or that word and phrase means who's living for luxury. The, the true widow is the godly woman who set her hope on God and is crying out in prayer, but she's not a woman who's looking for fiscal gain from the church so that she can wear Prada and spend her life in self-absorbed, self-indulgent luxury. That kind of woman, Paul says, is dead. She, her heart is dead even though she lives. It's true of all of us. If we set our hearts on the things of this world, we're not walking in life. You cannot serve God in money. So Paul sets out this implication, care for widows. Care for widows, church. It's your obligation to provide for and to support financially the widows who are among you, but to do that with discernment. So care for the true widows among you. Let the church, he says this at the end of verse 16, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. If we only have so much resources financially to care, we have to be discerning about who we care for and how we care for them. Care with discernment. It's one of the reasons we have a benevolent fund at Woodside, and it's managed and dispersed by faithful deacons and deaconesses. When there are financial needs in the church family, this fund can be leveraged to provide financial support and care. So if you ever give online or use one of the envelopes and you see the word deacon fund there, that's our benevolent fund to provide for people who have specific financial needs. Even it would include these true widows as they have need to provide and care for them. If you want to give in that way, that's what the deacon's fund is for. That's what it's there. And we have a great team of faithful people who are discerning and wise and help, can help walk through that. If you have need, come talk to us. We would love to help care for you with discernment in that way. So we honor one another as family. We care for one another with discernment. And then thirdly, we fulfill our responsibility with faithfulness. That is, maybe to say it another way, we live in the station of life that God has given us to the glory of God in the world. Now, here's what I mean by that. We fulfill our responsibility with faithfulness. God has given each one of us a particular station in life right now. So whether you're a young man or an older man or a younger woman or an older woman, you are in a specific place and time in life. And there are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do and certain things that you have better ability and competency at and there are certain things that you don't have ability and competency at. And there are certain areas of respect that you should receive and certain areas that you need to, to grow in and develop in. We are to fulfill the responsibility as God has given us in the place and station of our life here and now. That's the general principle. Here's the way it works out specifically. And I'm going to go real fast. Paul in verses 9 through, six, uh, yeah, 9 through 16, he is talking not just about generally widows in the church. He is talking about a specific order, if you will, or group of women, a particular roster, if you will, of widows in the church that have given themselves to serve in ministry for the church, directly to the church. 
You might think a comparison of this or maybe a way that this has worked itself out in church history overall has been, think about nuns. Think about nuns in the Roman Catholic Church. They've dedicated themselves. This is a specific older group of women who've made a vow before God and the church, and they've come on the church payroll, as it were, to be cared for the church, but yet they're employed by the church to serve and do specific ministry. So when Paul says in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled, that word enrollment there is to make a selection for membership in a group. These women are coming forward and they're applying to be a part of this group of women who are employed by the church to do ministry in the church. And they're focused on ministry in the church. Uh, Early church fathers talked about this group uh, or this order of women was evident. John Stott writes that this group of registered widows gave themselves to prayer nursed the sick, cared for orphans, visited Christians in prison, evangelized pagan women, taught female converts in preparation for their baptism. Now, to be in that order or that role, to have that employment or office, if you will, Paul says there has to be certain qualifications. Just as there's qualifications to be an elder or a deacon or a deaconess, for a, for a woman who's a widow to apply to be in that, she's got to meet the qualifications. And here's what they are. They're pretty simple or pretty clear in, in many ways. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says the qualifications are this. First of all, the woman has to be over the age of 60. So he says, let her not be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And then secondly, she has to be faithful to her husband. She, her marriage has to be one of fidelity and faithfulness to him as they were married, having been the wife of one husband or literally a woman of one man. One woman, man. It's just the the same phrase that Paul uses for elders in chapter 3, being faithful to his wife, a one-woman man. So the widow here would be a one-man woman, the other way around. So over the age of 60, faithful to her husband while he was alive. Thirdly then, she has to have an earned reputation of faithfulness and good works. It says in verse 10, she has a reputation for good works. And here's a kind of example list of that. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has developed her, devoted herself to every good work. That's just the, the quality and character of a woman who's ready for this employment in the church. That's a good list. That's a good thing. And he gives some important reasons why that's the case. And really, he's trying to push against why younger women shouldn't be in this role or shouldn't be in this office. He says in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. And here's why. These younger widows, they have a particular station and place in life at the moment. They have specific energy at the moment that if they were to step into the office of these older women, they would find themselves, frankly, rather bored and would become troublemakers and fall into trouble themselves. So he says, refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Now, here's what he's saying. This office had a specific vow or covenant that they made to it, that they wouldn't marry, they would devote themselves to the church, devote themselves to God. But as a younger widow, you could see and think, well, hey, that, maybe you meet someone in the church, and like, he's a cute guy, and like, I want to... And this, there's a tension of the hearts all of a sudden. And now with that tension, they have to wrestle with, do I keep my vow? Do I break it? This is what verse 12 speaks to. So they incur condemnation for abandoning, for having abandoned, and the English here says their former faith. The word faith there could be translated their pledge or their vow. It's like younger women who want to be in this office, this office isn't fitting for them because they have so much better energy, readiness to serve deeper ways to be missionaries in the world and in the culture in their life than these older women 
do in their lives. I think what Paul does here is he dignifies older women. He gives them a way of living and working in the church against the culture that says, when you hit 75, you know, you're useless to society. Paul says, no, the church has a place for you as an older woman. There's a woman. There's a ministry for you to do. There's a way for you to serve and to give your life. What does that look like? Well, it's the way of prayer. It's a way of visitation, of caring for, for those who are in the church, of doing the slow, unseen, low-energy kinds of ministry that older women could carry out very, very faithfully. Now, Paul's saying to older women, you have this ministry. There's this job for you and a role in the church and a way for you to serve, and it's beautiful and good, and we want you to have that. But younger women, younger widows, that role isn't for you because you have energy to do the normal and ordinary things of life as a missionary outside the church in the world. And so he says, I would have younger widows, verse 14, marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. The point is this, if the younger women do the older women's job, they will find themselves out of alignment and out of opportunity and fall into boredom and idleness. And that's the concern he has in verse 12, 13. He says they, they learn to be idlers. If, if their life is just about going around and visiting people and praying, that's a low energy thing in many ways. And they learn to become idlers and they go from house to house and then they move not only from being idlers, but then they also become gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Paul's point isn't to degrade younger women but it's to uplift older women and to put younger women, younger widows, in, in the right frame of mind and the frame of life to live and to serve and to glorify God well in the church. Be faithful women. Be responsible to the world and in the world as missionaries. Display and demonstrate the gospel in the world. It's a mission focus that Paul has here. Do normal, ordinary, faithful, responsible life as a younger woman as an ambassador for Jesus. Do the energetic work of a faithful woman in the world. So be faithful to your family. Be faithful to your relatives. He says in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them so that the church would not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now again, this is a very specific context, but what does it mean for us generally? I read this passage and I go, how, do, how does a man <laughs> apply this today? How does, how does a young woman who's not married, who hasn't been married, apply this today? How does an older woman who's uh, married, how does she apply it? How do we all apply this today? The framework is here for our family dynamic. Paul is in this specific say, setting saying there's specific faithful responsibilities that you are to have and to carry out. So do them. Younger women, do your role. Older women, do your role. Younger men, do your role. Older men, do your role. All of us, men, women, young and old, are responsible, that's the key word, to care for one another and the church. And we have those responsibilities that we must be faithful to carry out as well. If I could paraphrase what Paul's saying to Timothy about the church family, how it should care and relate, he'd say, stay in your lane. Fulfill your calling. So younger men, get jobs. Work hard. Care and provide for your family earn, be faithful, be a faithful ambassador for Jesus in the world. Use your energy for the glory of God. And older men, be wise sages and examples of industry and godliness for the younger men. Mentor the younger men in godliness, in diligence, in skill, in craft, in trade. Mentor them in faithfulness. 
Use your wisdom to encourage and spur young men on. Young ladies, be faithful and industrious in the vocations and roles and opportunities that God has given you to fulfill and carry out in your life. And older ladies, lead the way in serving, dedicating yourself to the Lord, mentoring younger women in the faith and in, uh, in life. Set the example. The point is don't look for the responsibility that's outside of your lane. Be faithful to your present calling. Live, as it were, in the now with who you are and the energy and the responsibility and the opportunity that God has given you. And in so doing, you will not give the adversary an occasion for slander. So how do we live as family? Let me just wrap all of this up here together. We're designed as a family to honor one another, to love one another, and to serve one another. We're designed as a family to care for one another and to supply the needs of one another, to do that with discernment and to help each other grow. And we're called as family to, to live in the responsibilities faithfully that God has given each one of us in our station in life here and now, to, to stay and operate into the way that God has called us today. If we live that way in the organized, clear pattern that God has given us as a family, as a church, the light of the gospel will shine out. The world will see people are cared for, needs are met, honor is given, Responsibilities are fulfilled, and they will stand in awe of Jesus. But if we live for ourselves and our lives, we won't show the world a beautiful, celebratory place of worship. We'll show the world a chaotic church that's only living for me. We are family. We're called to be responsible for and with one another. Let's do that in faithfulness to the Lord and with one another. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.